The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Revival. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 64, 1 through 4, and chapter 6, 1 through 8. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And then, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we acknowledge right away this morning our great need for you. Um, Jesus, you said that without the Father, without God, we can do nothing, meaning nothing in our life is productive, nothing is eternal, nothing has eternal value if we try to do it outside or away from God. Um, And that's especially true in what I'm about to do, which is um, talk about you and explain your word and preach your word. And so I ask that you Holy Spirit would come down and you would help me think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, let your people hear your word. And I ask that dead hearts would come alive. I ask that cold hearts would be set aflame. I ask that people that are far from you, they would come to know you and be brought in to you. Christians who um, have a dead faith, in a sense, that you would revive it. Um, young people that don't know you, that you would bring them to know you. Um, I ask that you would do this in and through the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit as I preach today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, this series that we've started, if you missed this last week, um, it was birthed out of two things. First, the more that I personally read and study God's word, the more passionate I become about God doing something special in our church and city. Over and over throughout the Bible, God comes down and people meet him and in very special ways um, and their lives are changed forever. Um, it spreads out when it changes people. It spreads out to their friends and family. In the New Testament, we have whole households coming to faith, whole households getting baptized. And then we have cities coming to know him and even nations. And, and so the wider culture is eventually affected by God coming down and meeting people. And secondly, I have too many friends that don't know or love Jesus. I know far too many people who claim to know Christ, but they're Life shows no fruit of repentance or passion for God, and they lack all spiritual vitality and vibrancy. I know you know many people like this as well, and they need a true revival from God. This is, of course, I've said last week, confirmed by the recent Barna research study that says the Quad Cities is the 27th least church city in the country. Less people go to church here than in Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, Des Moines, Iowa City, or Omaha. And last week, we began our series by asking two important questions. One, what is revival? And two, should we want it? 
We began to answer both questions by looking to the prophet Isaiah, and specifically Isaiah 64, 1 through 4, that we had read again this morning. And it shows us that revival is a movement of God where he comes down, meets people in a special way, and his presence brings about about a great change among people as they respond positively or negatively to his presence. And I'm going to put this up on the screen. Oh, there it is already. Uh, The working definition of revival that we're using this entire series is this. It's a movement of God where individuals are awakened to God, churches are revitalized, and the culture is impacted for the glory of God. And Isaiah also, so he says that's what revival is, but then he also showed us that we should, yes, desire it. He prayed for revival and he prayed like this, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, right? Now that oh, it's funny because we, we, that oh, oh might be the most, fa- most like common used word in all of songs throughout history, right? It's like not just when the, the singer songwriter can't think of another word, we just sing oh and we just do it d- different rhythms, right? No, oh is something kind of guttural, Oh, is something, it's a cry from the soul. It's a, it's, it's a, a cry of desperation that, that something wells up from the deepest part of who we are and says, oh, and that in Isaiah cries out, not for a woman, <laughs> right? Not for another love, not for more wealth, not for more children. His guttural cry is, oh, God, that you would come down. You would rend the heavens and come down and awaken your people. So he says, yes, we should desire it. But if you're like me, most of us struggle to really believe that God could do that or that God would do that. I had two meetings this week that confirmed this. The first was with my son who just turned 11 and we were talking about how to overcome some of the normal, the struggles that he has as a growing boy, how to overcome them by faith. And when we were talking about asking the Holy Spirit and asking Jesus who lives inside of us to help us and enable us to overcome these issues and these struggles by faith. And he says, well, what if God doesn't help me? What if I pray and he doesn't help me? And the second meeting this week was with Someone on the other end of the spectrum, a gray-headed member of our church, and he said, when he thinks about revival, he says, doubt creeps in. What if I pray for it and it doesn't happen? What if we get all excited about revival and God doesn't show up, right? It's like throwing a birthday party and the birthday boy doesn't come, right? What if God doesn't do it? Well, my first response is from my gut is, well, what if he does, right? Like there is the, the, there is the reality of what if he doesn't, but what if he does, right? What do we need personally? What does our city need? What does our family need? What if God actually shows up? Doesn't the, the positives and the benefits outweigh any po- possibility of negatives? But what I wanna see is that is a human response. It is a natural response that this is, a, this is what it means to walk by faith is doubt creeps in. Doubt is an ever-present reality in our life that we have to conquer by faith. We have to take thought captives and make them obedient to, to the ways of Christ. And this morning, what I want us to see is I want us to go back to Isaiah. And I want, to, I want us to think, sometimes we read the Bible and we think the guys in the Bible are these heroes. And, and it's, you, you, I don't, I, I'm very hesitant to use, any, to use that hero language about anyone in the Bible other than Jesus Christ. Okay? Because everyone is flawed. Everyone is screwed up. Everyone has seasons of doubt and seasons of fear and seasons of unbelief. And Isaiah did as well. And so where did Isaiah get this desire in chapter 64? He prays, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. But what happened to Isaiah? Where did the Isaiah get this faith to believe in this God who could bring revival? Was he just a super, you know, stud of the faith? Absolutely not. He didn't just well it up inside him. He didn't pray it into existence. He didn't manifest it in his own self or in his own spirit. What we're going to learn from Isaiah 
is revival only comes from one place, and that is a true, real encounter with the real God himself. That's what revived revived Isaiah. That's what can revive us. That's what can lead to revival in our city. So I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 6 with me. This might be one of the most important texts that I've ever preached for you. And I say that because it's, it, it just blows the doors off of mo- our concept of God, I think. Most of our concepts of God. And so I'm really expectant that God's going to do something special. Young people, if young people, my own son, my the young people in here, if you think God is boring, we need, to, we need to talk about this text right here this morning. And I hope that you get a new vision, a new picture of God. Okay, we're going to be Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Now, this is what's going on. We're, we're I'll do the quick math, right? Uh, 58 chapters earlier here, okay, in the book of Isaiah. And this is a time in Isaiah's life when, listen, he wasn't excited about revival. When his heart wasn't on fire for the Lord. In fact, commentators say he was in in great need of revival himself. And now that's really good news for those of us here this morning whose hearts are cold and unresponsive to God. That God can't revivify us. He did it for Isaiah. He can do it for us. He can take a cold and lifeless faith And breathe new life into it. So if you're just going through the motions this morning. If your spiritual life is all duty and no delight. All rules and no real relationship with God. Then you're in for some good news this morning. If you would pay attention. And if you would open up your mind. And read with us. See Isaiah was in a similar spot. But his whole life changed one day at church. He had an encounter with God that acted as a spiritual defibrillator and brought new life to his cold and lifeless heart. So first we're going to see Isaiah's need. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. In almost a Passover sentence for many of us. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now we know from 2 Chronicles 26 that Uzziah's reign was long and prosperous. God brought great prosperity and success to really everything Israel tried to do during this time. But as often is the case, God's people didn't handle that success very well. See, prosperity and success are far more spiritually dangerous than scarcity and failure ever will be. Jesus testified to this often. So as God's people experienced God's favor upon them, their spiritual fervor waned. Their religious life continued. They still went to the temple. They still offered the sacrifices. They still set aside a day to worship God. So they were doing the outward religious things, but God himself and his presence became unreal to them. Now this is what This is what I want you to picture. If revival is God coming down and making his presence known and people having a special awareness of God's presence, recession feels like God's absence, God pulling away and God feeling unreal to people. That's what it feels like. That's the experience that Isaiah is living through during this reign of Uzziah. See, as Uzziah, see, King Uzziah, he pursued God for a while, but then to quote 2 Chronicles 26.5, Uzziah grew proud to his destruction. As God brought success to the nation and to his rule and to his reign, he began to take credit for it. I don't really need God. We're in a time of season of prosperity. Things are going well for us. I don't really need God. He grew proud to his own destruction. And as the king's heart turned away from the Lord, the whole nation followed their king into lukewarmness. To quote 2 Timothy again from last week, they had a form of godliness, but no real power. 
They were religious observers, moral on the outside, but not truly awake to God. The same was true for Isaiah. But here in the first sentence of chapter 6, in the year King Uzziah died. This marked an end to a sad yet significant chapter in the life of God's people. They were spiritually asleep and now they're in great need of awakening. But then one day, Isaiah walks into the temple. The modern day equivalent of walking into a church service. And one day, something he's done a million times before, a thousand times before. And one day he walks in and everything changes. That's important for us to see and understand. See, the most common place for revival to begin is at church, the house of God. And you don't know when that's going to happen. It might happen on a day when there's six inches of new snow. See, Isaiah didn't necessarily come in expecting something great to happen. We don't have any notion of him praying fervently before the service. Today could be the day, God. We don't see this expectant faith in him. He just walks into the service one day. He walked into the temple the same way he had a thousand times before. But this time, God decided in his providence to come down, to rend the heavens. This is one of the reasons why we should rarely miss out on the Sunday gathering. Who knows when the Lord might speak? Who knows when the Lord might rend the heavens and come down? And we wouldn't want to miss out on that. So many of us, I talk to people, you know, I I spoke on anxiety three or four weeks ago. And I I meet people who deal with anxiety all the time. And I think, well, what did did you hear about the sermon? What sermon? Like, oh the sermon that I was preaching on anxiety and I was thinking about you and I knew how much you needed it and I was giving it to you and you just missed it and you didn't listen to the podcast? Well, I might preach that again in, I don't know, eight months, a year, I don't know, right? You never know when the word you need to hear is being preached from this pulpit or the song that you need to hear is being sung from this stage or the liturgy that's being read is being read aloud. You never know. That God can use one thought. People talk about books can change your life. Books never change your life. John Piper says a sentence can change your life. One sen- You read a new sentence and it just opens up new possibilities. You see God in a new way. You see yourself in a way. You see your career in a new way. Your family in a new way. You never know. And I, there's a lot of really good sentences like that spoken through this book. You never know when one is going to turn the light bulb on for you. Now, the first thing we see, in the, ki- in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. First thing we see is that, listen, just as poor leadership led Isaiah and the nation into lukewarm faith, God's leadership is going to lead them out into revival. As King Uzziah died and abandoned his throne, God shows Isaiah that the Lord is sitting upon an eternal throne, high and lifted up with his robe filling the entire temple. So here we have a contrast in kings, the earthly king who's here today and gone tomorrow and the eternal king who is permanently enthroned in heaven, right? Now, this is the moment of Isaiah's awakening. This is the moment, this is the gatherings, the church service where his faith is quickened and he comes to new life. This is Isaiah's, we could say, his own personal revival. And from it, we learn at least two important ingredients for revival. Two things that are necessary for true revival to take place. You need light And you need heat. You need light and heat. Now light symbolizes knowledge. When a light comes on in a dark room, you you know what's in that room. You begin to see things as they are. What was hidden becomes known. 
The same way when the spiritual light of God comes on in a person, the same things happen spiritually speaking. It's as if they've been stumbling around in a dark room their entire life. And then all of a sudden, God turns on the light. And when God does that, the first two things they begin to see are, one, the nature of the true God and the reality of their own condition. The nature of the true God and the reality of their own condition. So to summarize that, when God turns on the spiritual light in a person's heart, they come to know God as he really is, not how they wish him to be. And they come to see themselves as they really are, not how they wish themselves to be. This is the first necessary ingredient in any revival. You have to have light, a new knowledge of God and a new knowledge of myself. And that's exactly what Isaiah gets here. The spiritual light bulb comes on and he gets a clear and accurate glimpse of God and himself that he never bargained for. Let's look at see what the prophet sees here. First, he sees God, the Lord. <clears throat> and we see that, look, I, in the year, King, <clears throat> excuse me, the year King Uzziah died, I saw, right? So this is like a vision he's seeing. The light has come on and it's enabled him. The spiritual light has come on and enabled him to see this, right? And what's he see? He sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. So there's this exalted, he's lifted up in the heavens and the train of his robe or the hem of his robe filled the entire temple. Okay. So this is a vision he's seeing on a normal church gathering and he sees God lifted up on a throne and then he sees the hem of his robe filling the entire temple. He's king of all kings. Now that's pretty cool. But look what else he sees. Young folks, this is where you need to pay attention. Actually, all of us. Verse two, above him stood the seraphim. Now, what is a seraphim? A seraphim is a winged angel. We learn that in this verse. It says each had six wings, okay? I've never seen this drawing, okay? Hallmark didn't get the, didn't get the memo on this one. This angel has six wings, all right? This is a supernatural being, and I'm going to say probably nothing like the one, when I say angel, the picture you have in your mind, okay? When I say the word angel, the picture you have in your mind right now, that's not what I'm talking about, more than likely, all right? Scholars call them burning ones. Burning ones. Old Testament scholar Ray Ortland says this. They are the seraphim. They are living flames. Living flames. That's, that's cool. Of pure nuclear powered praise. Isaiah sees these nuclear angels flying around the throne of God here, shouting, the, shouting out the praises of God. In the book of Revelation, it says how many of them are there? Myriads upon myriads. What does that mean? Millions upon millions of angels, not these little fat little baby looking things. <laughs> Living flames of nuclear powered praise swarming the throne of God. And what do those nuclear-powered supernatural beings think about God? They're not yawning. What does it take to arrest the attention of a nuclear power supernatural being? Right? We all watch, we watch these X-Men type movies. We watch these Marvel type movies. And most of these men, if they are some kind of superhero, they're not, impre they're not impressed by anybody else. Definitely not impressed by human beings, right? They're gods among men. And here we, something in our imagination that would cause all of them to cower. And these supernatural 
nuclear praised angels, what do they do in the presence of God? Well, first we see their sinless eyes aren't even capable at looking at him directly. With two wings, they cover their face. They're nuclear flames. And they cover their face from the presence of God. They've never sinned. They can't even look at him in the face. They cover their face. They cover their feet. They cover themselves in humility, unable to look up on the undiluted glory of the God of the universes. And then what do they do? They sing. And we sing. See, one of the key pieces of any revival is a singing people. Because we sing about what we're passionate about. We sing about what we love. Not just what we know to be intellectually stimulating or intellectually true. We sing about what we love. And these nuclear-powered angelic beings cover themselves in humility and sing out about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And it says the foundations shook. And when you hear, when I say these things are singing, these aren't little, you know, a nice choir, you know, a nice children's choir echoing from the balconies. We have the air show every year in the Quad Cities. And every year during the air show, you have these jets that fly over the Quad Cities and just rattle the windows. You can't even see them, right? They're already passed or whatever, right? They're already passed and just, and then the speed of sound, because they're breaking the speed of sound, they're breaking the sound barrier and it's just sending ripples and it causes our windows to shake. Think about that. Millions upon millions of these supernatural beings singing out holy, holy, holy and it's breaking the sound barrier and the entire building is shaking. The windows rattle and the ground shakes. They sing out with deafening vocal power. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's the only time in the Old Testament where one word is used three times in a row. That's the way the Hebrews would emphasize something. And it's not like one plus one plus one equals three. It's more like um, a million times a million times a million times a million. It's a multiplication factor. They don't even know how to describe what they're seeing. All I can say is it's holy times a holy times holy. Dr. Ortland helps us understand what this means. It says this, God's holiness is simply his godness in all his attributes, works and ways. And he is not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Each word boosting the force of the previous one exponentially. No other threefold adjective appears in all the Old Testament. It takes a unique linguistic contrivance to convey meaning beyond its meaning. As the seraphim, listen, as the seraphim strain at the leash of language to say that God alone is God. He is not like us, only bigger and nicer. He's in a different category altogether. He's holy. These nuclear-powered, praising angels made of living flame, they're straining at the leash of language to describe being in the presence of God. And basically all I can say is God, God, God. He's not like us. He's not a little bit better, a little bit smarter, a little bit cooler than us. He's out of our imagination. He's beyond us. He's the creator. We're the creation. We don't have words to express it. Now, this is where we have a big problem. The word holy has been drained of almost all of its true meaning in our culture. When, I, when we say holy, 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 some of us hear boring, boring, boring. We think boring, lame, judgmental. The word holy has been tamed. It's been neutered. 
And the modern day definition lacks anything that could change your life, capture your imagination, reorient your values, and fill your life with meaning that could never be taken away. And I, I don't have time to go into a full treatment of that this morning. But it should su- suffice it to say this. God's holiness, if you could put it on a spectrum, it's the polar opposite of boring. If boring is on the spectrum, God's holiness is the other end of the spectrum. Sinless nuclear angels are eternally entertained. Holiness, I can't get past that thought. Sinless. See, sin makes us boring. Sinless nuclear angels are eternally entertained. Holiness is the beauty that your heart longs for. Holiness is the moral purity that we crave in all of our leaders. Holiness is the truth that we want in our judges and in our courts. Holiness is the power we want in our military. Holiness is the justice we want in our world. So if you think holiness is boring, you're like a child who thinks the concept of sex sounds boring. Or like a three-year-old who you say, we want a million dollars, and they say, I want my passy. You just, if you think holiness and God is boring, you just don't know what you're talking about. And, And I have to admit, It's not all your fault. Many pastors have shied away from talking about God's holiness out of fear of offending people. And many people don't want to hear about a holy, uncontrollable, nuclear God like this. I gotta pull this up. I'm reminded of the quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. All right, you got Susan talking to the beaver, talking about Aslan, the lion. She says, Aslan is a lion? The lion? The great lion? Oh, oh, says, there's that word again. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is what we see of God. Is he safe? Absolutely not. He's holy. He's nuclear. But is he good? Absolutely. Now, here's what I was thinking this week. Many pastors or many churches pay their pastors to protect them from an encounter with the real God. They want their pastors to fiddle around with budgets and programs and having nice kids and trying to make everybody happy instead of showing them from the Bible the glory of the holy God. See, this is what we were made to behold. This isn't a place just to make your kids good, moral, upstanding citizens. This is a place where we show you who God is and you become enthralled with him for the rest of your life because this is what you were made for. This is what your soul was designed for. This is why entertainment can never entertain you enough. This is why sex can never fulfill you enough. Food can never fulfill you enough. Drink can never fulfill you enough. Exercise can never fulfill you enough. You were made for more. You were made to behold the glory of God. This is the glory of our creator. But it's in the light. When the light comes on and we see God's holiness, This is also where we begin to see 
the reality of our own condition. And everyone, I'm going to tell you, everyone is born with this. We have this innate sense that something is indeed wrong with us. We fight hard to overcome it, to suppress it. We're taught by our parents and our coaches and our teachers to use every accomplishment as proof that we are somehow not as broken as we think we are. Nearly every addiction in our life is fueled by the attempt to silence this feeling of inadequacy. Because we know deep down that what Isaiah finds out of himself is also true of us. That in the light of God's holiness, we all say, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. See, sin isn't just doing bad things. It is doing bad things, but it's more than that. It's doing bad things and the responsible guilt that comes from doing bad things, but it's much deeper than that. Listen, sin is the power of evil unleashed in this world. As Dorothy Sayers once wrote, sin is a deep interior dislocation at the very center of human personality. Sin is the reason we lock our doors at night. Sin is the reason we buy insurance. Sin is the reason we look at ourselves suspiciously and we look at other people suspiciously. Because there is an evil in the world and that evil runs through us. Listen to scholar Fleming Rutledge. She says, sin, theologically understood, is analogous to the unconscious impulses and drives that shape our personalities in harmful ways, making us perfectionists, procrastinators, deceivers, abusers, addicts, schemers, bullies, fanatics, adulterers, and all the other manifestations that afflict the human species from sources beyond our control. Now, what are you going to do with that? Sin isn't just doing bad things. It's the evil power at work in the world and the evil power at work in our own heart that makes us guilty before God and unable to stand in his presence. Are you going to try to work your way out of that? Look at Isaiah. Verse 5. When he sees this God and he sees this picture, this holy God and these angels that are screaming out this worshipful chorus and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of the angel who called. The house was filled with smoke and I said, woe is me. I am undone. I am undone. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This is what Isaiah is saying. I'm in trouble. I'm sinful. I'm broken. I'm in a family of sinful, broken people. I'm in a nation of sinful, broken people. I've got an issue. I've got a problem. I don't know what to do about this. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king. So here's the reality. The light, the knowledge of God we're about to see isn't enough to bring revival. The knowledge of God and even the knowledge of ourself is not enough to change a cold heart into a living, breathing, loving heart for God. You need light and you need heat. If something is cold and dead, just knowing that fact doesn't do anything to change its condition. Just knowing that God is holy and I am not doesn't do anything to change my, my condition into something that's holy that can actually enjoy the presence of God. 
Heat, if something's cold and dead and lifeless, heat must be added from the outside to change its physical properties. The same is true spiritually. Knowing God as holy and supremely satisfying and knowing ourselves as perennially sinful and boring isn't enough to revive our cold hearts. Listen, many of you in this room, you have the knowledge. You know God is holy. You know you're sinful. But you don't have a living faith. Your heart is still cold. It's still lifeless. It's still dead. Just knowing those two things doesn't bring personal revival. We need fire, heat from the outside to come in and revive us. We need someone to act on our behalf and heat us up. Look at Isaiah. For Isaiah, this person that's outside of himself, that's going to bring revival to him, is a seraphim, one of these nuclear angels. Then one seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Burning coal. Here you see fire, heat, cleansing. And this seraphim, first off, let me say, a nuclear Living flame use tongs. <laughs> do, you, do you see what's right? He, he's not like, oh, that's hot, right? That's not why he used tongs. It's symbolizing something holy, something separate, something he's not worthy to touch. It's not too hot for him to handle. He grabs it with tongs. He flies over to Isaiah. Keep reading. Verse 7. And he touched my mouth. See, Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips. I say a lot of sinful, stupid stuff. This is part of my problem. I'm impure. I'm not worthy to stand in the presence of God. There's a problem there. I know it. I'm aware of it. And the seraphim says, oh, I got your answer. Swings down, picks it up, comes, touches his lips. Now we think, but you don't see any pain. Right? Isaiah, he cried out in repentance. Woe is me, God. I need somebody to help me. I need somebody to save me. I have a problem and I need fixing. The seraphim steps up and does it. That's what he says. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Guilt for what? Doing sinful things. Your sin should produce guilt in you. Why? You've done something sinful. You sinned against God. Right? You broke his commandments. You did something sinful. We have guilt. Okay? This touching of the coal removed his guilt. What else did it do? And your sin atoned for. What does that mean? Our sin separates us from God. It means a lot of things, but our sin separates us from God. This whole scene is a picture that they're separated. That we are separated from a holy God. We can't be in his presence without disastrous consequences. And now this angel has done something to Isaiah that atones for his sin. He's saying, now you can be in God's presence and now you can see him and now you can enjoy him and now you can love him. At one, the two that were made separate have now become one. You can be one with God again, not be God, but you can be in a relationship with him now. This is what, again, commentator Ray Ortland says, as the, as the, the coal touched his mouth, but this holy thing touches Isaiah's dirty mouth and it doesn't hurt him. It heals him. What we must see in the context of the whole Bible is that this burning coal symbolizes the finished work 
of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus went to the place of the sacrifice. He went to the altar. His dying love is the only power that can awaken people as dead to God as we are. And awaken us, he does. See, Jesus comes to us today through the Holy Spirit. And he says again, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Welcome into the overwhelming delight of my presence. And he says this, when the magnitude of that grace touches Isaiah, he's awakened to live for God. This is where the desire for revival begins in his own personal revival. Revival begins with us before it hits our city, before it hits our family, before it hits our friends and our businesses. Revival hits us. And I hope this morning that God has given you a compelling vision of him and his holiness. But honestly, we don't have to go into our mind's eye and imagine the throne room of God and seraphim and burning coals to get a sense of his majesty and infinite worth. We get to look into history. We get to look at the cross. It is there that the sinless son of God stood in our place condemned. Isaiah's burning coal was metaphorical because Jesus's would be literal. It's on the cross where we see the son of God cry out, woe is me. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, and it's the gospel that tells us how our guilt is taken away and how our sin is atoned for. It's with the precious blood of Christ. That Jesus took the punishment that we deserve so that we can have the new life that he deserves. And I want you to think about this. Scripture tells us that on the cross, Jesus could have called out 10,000 angels to come to his rescue. 10,000 of these flaming nuclear-powered angels could have came and just annihilated everyone. But he didn't. He stayed on the cross. He paid the price. He gave up his life so that we could be atoned for, so that we could come to know God, so that we could experience revival, so that our cold, dead, lifeless hearts could be set aflame with the fire of God, so that we could see a God who could capture our imaginations and direct the rest of our life. This is the gospel of grace. This is the gospel heat that awakens and warms cold, dead hearts to God. The gospel is the fuel of revival. And look at verse 8. And I heard the the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Clearly, God isn't looking for information here. He's all-knowing, but he's offering an invitation. Isaiah, I just brought revival to your heart. What do you want to do with that? If the Lord would give us a compelling vision of his glory and his holiness, there is nothing we will want more than to share that with someone else. Our family, our friends, our coworkers, our missional community. God, would you give us that vision? Who will go for me, go for us? And of course, Isaiah said, here I am, send me. I know you have a compelling vision of retirement. You have a compelling vision of vacation. You have a compelling vision of a successful career that you're working towards. You have a compelling vision of a nice family that you're working towards. 
We're, we're led ahead. We're drug into our future by the compelling visions that we possess. And I'm asking God, and I pray that you would desire of God to give, to give you a compelling vision of him that pulls you forward into the rest of your life. A holy God like the God we see here. And your response would be, oh, here I am. Send me. Revival starts in our hearts. We get light, we get heat, and then it spreads out from there. Let me pray. Father, I, I have no hope and no trust in my own ability to describe things that the angels, it says in 1 Peter, right? The angels long to look into the gospel that they're ever entertained by it, ever enthralled by it. And if these angelic voices don't know what to say, except holy, 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 I have no real hope in my own communication abilities to declare how good and glorious and holy you are. But I do have a great faith and hope in the God who does such things and in the Holy Spirit who can awaken our minds. And so I believe that in this gathering this morning, you are turning the spiritual light bulb on in people's minds and you're applying the heat of the sacrificial altar to people's lips, that you're purifying them, you're saving them, you're changing them from the outside in. And for those here this morning that Maybe you've just had this vision, or you've just had this concept, and you want God to bring this healing to you, bring this forgiveness and deliverance to you. Ask him, pray in faith, God save me a sinner. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. Father, would you save people this morning? Would you apply the balm of the gospel to them? Would you do this for your glory and our great joy? And for those of us who believe the gospel and we've been baptized in it, Father, would we come and would be once again warmed, warmed this time at the altar or at the table of your supper or we look at the price that you paid for us? It wasn't theoretical that you went into the flame for us. You were consumed for us. Your body was broken, your blood was shed so that we could be made new and we could know God intimately. Father, would you bring revival to your people? Would you start with us? Here we are, Lord. Send us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.